My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is the Technically Speaking Podcast. I sit down with BIPOC designers, entrepreneurs, and technologists. We discuss careers, triumphs, their resilience, and the why behind their decisions. Before we get started with the show, I just wanted to plug our Patreon. If you like what you're listening to and you want to support the podcast, for as low as $3, you can contribute monthly to help support the production of the show. You can contribute today by heading over to patreon.com slash technically speaking HW. I'll also include the link in the show notes. Kendall House, also known in his circle as Boo Boo, is a senior designer, illustrator, and musician. He shares his journey from being a DIY punk rock musician to becoming a designer. He talks about his love for Dungeons and Dragons and how it has become a platform for cooperative storytelling and communication. Kendall also talks about the influence of comics and alternative culture on his creative expression. He emphasizes the importance of community and collaboration in design and shares his experience in advocating for diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. Let's get into it. My guest today is Kendall Boo Boo House, located in Oakland, California. Welcome to the show, senior designer, illustrator, musician. You do a lot. We'll get into it. But how are you doing today? I'm doing well, really well, thank you. Enjoying looking out the window, seeing the rain, knowing that it's not going to be enough to do anything about the drought conditions that we have. But still, it's nice to get a little damp every once in a while. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. And for people that are listening, I was talking about Obviously, these episodes come out a little bit later than when they're recorded. It's really interesting. It turned into November and it started raining and we got daylight savings time all at the same time. So it's like we just snapped in the fall. Briefly. I'm <laughs> sure we'll be back to, to spring in no time. <laughs> Probably. So look, I want to I wanna get started in a few icebreaker questions before we get into the meat of the show. And I always love to kick off the show with this question. What is something that you are currently obsessed with? Right now, to be honest, I am currently obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. <laughs> I've played D&D when I was real young back in the 80s. It was super geeky. It was pretty technical and it, it was a pretty cutthroat. I have a puppy off camera right now. And when, as soon as I get on a meeting is when she decides it's time to wreck house. I yeah. would, I thought that I'd be better than some of your other guests that didn't have animal interruptions, but we're all human. Just give me one second. Yeah, we were talking before the show about David Silva. He actually had a pet bird that was chirping in the background the whole time. Yes. So it's all good. We're just, maybe I'll just give your puppy credit on the listener notes. Sounds great. Her name is Binti. And, uh, there we go. She's a terror. <laughs> but yeah, so Dungeons and Dragons, when I was a kid, it was a very competitive game and it was about as far from inclusive as you could get. Mm. I enjoyed it some, but as I got older, I started trying to play with people I didn't know. I just found it was just really an unwelcoming community. And so I quit playing when I was around 14. And in all of the years since then, they've gone through several editions and the newest version and incarnation of it is just so much more inclusive. It's so much more about cooperative storytelling and improvisation mm. and less about head-to-head -head competition. And as far as facilitation goes, it's such a, a, an amazing venue and proving ground to work on communication, to work on yeah. group dynamics, and to really work on cooperative goal setting 
and it's wildly fun. So yeah. I've been a dungeon master on a campaign for just over a year now, and it's a blast. And just like in any other, what is um, what is a dungeon master? You gotta. <laughs> I'm not familiar with all these terms. Sorry about that. <laughs> So pretty much that the game of Dungeons and Dragons or any tabletop role-playing game, one player creates a world or a story or uses one that they buy, but they're yeah. narrating what's going on in the story and they're setting the right. they're setting the rules, they're setting the scope and the dynamics of the gameplay. And then the players, the other players are embodying characters that are interacting with that setting. And so the dungeon master, the game master, the DM, as we get away from using the term master as much as possible, it's less yeah. master-slave dynamic and it's more master as in controller or say any language like, like knowledge. To... Yes. <laughs> And so it is the facilitator, essentially, the yeah. one who sets the, sets the stage, sets the scope, and then manages and guides all the mm. gameplay within it. So there's a lot of responsibility, a lot of opportunity to really flex one's creativity and imagination. And so yeah. it's arguably the most challenging role within a role-playing game, but I find it to be wildly rewarding. And it gives me an opportunity to have my ADHD hyper-focus sure. on things that are lower stakes than mm. spending all night working on my day job or things like that. I find that I'm going down a rabbit hole. I can channel that energy into something fun for my players. Yeah. I imagine there's a bit of improvisation with that and even though you put in all the planning it's all improvisation so even yeah. the planning is really about creating as many opportunities as possible but never deciding for the players what they're going to choose mm. i think that my ux training has really yeah. helped with that where uh, we know best laid plans it doesn't matter the user is going to do what the user is going to do and yeah. what well, my puppy agrees <laughs> <laughs> But we really want to just provide successful outcomes yeah. without necessarily knowing the choices that are going to be made. So if yeah. they choose things that we never anticipated, I think that planning goes into making sure that they're likely to be successful either way. Yeah. Yeah. Look at that. Generative exercises, even in gameplay. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. This is so hilarious. He's playing fetch with his dog while we're on the... <laughs> This is very much my day to day. I spend a lot of time in it's meetings so while I'm casually throwing a toy for my dog. <laughs> all right. All right. So look, I got to ask you this question. How did you get the name Boo Boo? What's the history of that? Sure. So I have an older, bigger brother. And when we were kids, we were about two and a half years apart. We were two grades apart. And when I believe I was in fifth grade, still in elementary school, he was in seventh grade up at the middle school. And his art teacher and girl in the class decided that he looked like Yogi Bear, which he does. <laughs> And so yeah. he became Yogi at that time, and I became Little Yogi for a okay. couple of years until one of his brighter friends realized that I could go by Boo Boo. I grew up in Boston in the 1980s and 90s mm -hmm. where it was like a Dick Tracy comic. Everybody, everybody right. had a nickname. And so it was very easy to just adopt that. And so I have just been Boo Boo forever. Yeah. I professionally go as either Kendall or Boo Boo. Some people don't want to call a grown man Boo Boo. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Kendall's an option yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and have comics played just a big role? I'm curious, that, did that have an influence even in terms of just the direction that you've gone down professionally? I think a little bit. I'm definitely one of yeah. those people when I was a kid, I was really 
I was a super heavy reader yeah. and I was really into alternative culture in general. Okay. And yeah. so when my brother and I were very young, second and fourth grade, there was a comic shop that opened down the street by two 20 something punk rock guys, mm. both named Sean. And my brother and I were going in there just looking for comic books and they, I don't know, they just pegged us as free thinkers or whatever. And so they got us into the first iteration of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when it first came mm. out and it was for mature readers and got us into, gosh, it was soon afterwards, things like The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, The Watchmen, Mouse, mm. 1987, 1988 were big years for kind of alternative comics in general. And yeah. that was as we were discovering alternative music, it really highlighted for, and also we were really into sci-fi and fantasy books. Like we we were just in general into seeking out things that, that our classmates weren't a part yeah. of. Part of that came from being marginalized within our community, within our neighborhood. My brother and I were two of the only kids of color in our mm -hmm. school. It was mostly Irish, Catholic, and Jewish neighborhood. And we were the poor kids. There was a lot about us that could didn't fit in if we wanted to and yeah. so we just struck out for other culture and that is i think a big part of why i seek out marginalized communities one because yeah. i think some of the most interesting art and expression comes from those communities anyway right but also it's in spaces in alternative spaces oftentimes we have the power and we have the capability to set the rules ourselves to come up with right. our own standards where mm. we don't have to be beholden to standards that were designed for other people and standards that were designed to exclude us and so this certainly tied together now was the Hanna-Barbera network a part of that not necessarily but <laughs> I think there's something about the magical realism of cartoons and comics and science fiction and fantasy that predated Afrofuturism but really mm -hmm. put together this idea of being able to speculate our own futures our own realities and yeah. gave me the ability to have a creation mindset of being able to go well things aren't satisfactory the way they are, rather mm. than just wallowing in discomfort, I feel empowered to be able to create new realities. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So one of the things you talked about was music. Your music. Do you still play music? I do, actually. I was just in the recording studio Tuesday, finishing up a new record for my band. Ah, yeah, so. What, so okay, it. so what kind of music, what instrument do you play, and what's the name of your band? I have been performing music since I was four, and I have done a lot of styles of music. My home really is in political punk rock. And so my band that I'm in right now is called Mass Arrest. It's a black liberation, wow. hardcore band, hyper-political. And in this band, I do sing, and I'm the yeah. lyricist and the art director. Wow. And yeah. But in other bands, wow. I've, I'm also very much a bass player, so I've been okay. in the bands playing bass. Yeah, I started as a violinist, so yeah. I just like the opportunity to get down. Yeah. So look, if there is a way that you could describe the sound, like how would you describe it? I would say to an insider who is familiar with the mm -hmm. genre, I would say that I would say that it's hardcore with uh, maybe a late 70s Brit pop influence mm. to the outsider, loud yeah. and brash. I would say if you don't like heavy music, don't worry about looking it up. It probably won't be your cup of tea. But if you're into heavy music, if you're into the hard stuff, then I definitely think that everyone in this band, we're all, we've all been recording and touring music for decades. And so I think that over time, the music just tends to get more and more interesting. And this is certainly some of the most interesting music that I've had the pleasure of performing with. Yeah. And I imagine this is also some of the most interesting times. So I'd imagine there's a lot to... <laughs> 
There's a lot of content to write around, I'm assuming. Absolutely. When I was asked to join this band at that time, I was really burnt out on a lot of things. And I was having a very difficult time professionally and personally. I was experiencing a lot of burnout, which leads to a lot of existential yeah. dread and doubt. And so I had said, okay, I will agree to be in this band, but it's going to be my final band in the genre. And it's going to be a Dear John letter where I'm going to say goodbye because it's a progressive space. But even in this progressive space, as a Black person, I still felt very excluded yeah. after almost 30 years of active participation. And so it was really an angry record. And it finally, we were able to finally release the full-length LP right before COVID. So we were not able to tour and support it. And in the interim, all of these other younger black bands of the same genre have popped up all over the country. Not as a result, I'm not gonna take credit for that, that are way more fierce and fearless, way more mm -hmm. expressive and are exactly what I was lamenting the lack of. Yeah. And it was a boon. And yeah. so when it came to writing the second record, rather than continuing the topic of kind of despair and frustration, I wanted to approach it as honestly as possible and express the hope and encouragement that I now feel because of bands like Zulu or Soul Glow that are really are just changing the scape and changing the scope of who can express and what they can express. And so while there's plenty to complain about, yeah. and I'm all for calling things out when we see them and when we encounter them, as someone who has a platform for creative expression, I have to remember that is a privilege and I choose mm -hmm. to use that then to be in communication with people like me who maybe are younger or don't have that privilege as an opportunity to encourage, right? Before the murder of George Floyd, it was very hard to get a broadly platformed message about the unfairness, inequities, and injustices that we encounter both right. personally and systemically. That's mm. not the case right now. And yeah. so rather than me using my platform to continue that message on that level, it was a great opportunity then to be able to get a little more niche, a little more focused and talk directly mm. to an audience that doesn't get talked to very often. Wow. That's a very powerful story. And I think there's some learnings to that though. I think like Sometimes navigating that solo, you get ingrained in the weight that you're surrounded with. I think as doors start to open for other folks that are a lot younger, it's almost incumbent to at least not project that onto them. I think that's a big piece of learning because absolutely, there's just so much that we have to deal with. How can you not, what's the word, internalize it, right? Absolutely. And I do not want to position myself as a mentor or an yeah. elder in this because that I think is viewed as a one-way kind of relationship. Mm. And I think it's really incumbent as well for those of us who have been doing anything for longer to also be informed by the newer yeah. influences as well. And so it's really important for me to highlight like the bands that I mentioned, how inspired I am by them how uplifted I am by them, because these are avenues of information and expression that weren't available to me before. And yeah. so it is crucial for me to be able to learn from them because the myths of American individualism and exceptionalism are harmful tools of oppression. And mm -hmm. if I believe that I am to do this alone, if I believe that the best ideas available to me are already in my head, I am doomed to fail. And that's very much by design. And right. so I 
I believe very firmly it's only when we work within community. It's only when we work in fellowship and it's only when we really are in a system of exchange right. that we have the opportunity to grow and to succeed. But this notion that I have to be isolated and figure it out on my own and nonsense about bootstraps or whatever, that's designed to make me think that if I'm not already succeeding, then I'm not going to. And that's why right. the whole self-made CEO myth and or founding father or whatever is so important as tools of oppression. We never talk about the broad networks they have. I work with my consultancy. I work with CEOs that are in, they have whole boards of directors. Right. They have people advising them on their personal lives so that they can handle their personal relationships, their mm. grooming and things like that. They have so many people that are giving yeah. them advice and helping them make the right decisions. They wouldn't be allowed to. They couldn't operate without a board of directors, either personally right. or professionally. They're expected to be in community. They're expected to be guided by others as well. And so to assume that we mm. should or could operate differently, it's nonsense. I'm sorry. Yeah. I get hell of ranty about this stuff. I've no, very, no. I, very I mean, passionate. I, no, I think that's really important, right? Like even the president like, has a huge group, a huge staff that is helping make decisions and write speeches and basically booking where he needs to be every single day. It's not a self-made trait. And also I'm sure is instructed to not sit alone with doubt. Yeah. If nothing else, you call somebody and say, hey, I'm feeling some type of way or I'm about yeah. to make a big decision. Could you just read over this email? How is the tone? Even the interview with David Silva that you had, I thought was fantastic. And one of the things that he talked about was having a buddy review emails for tone or make business calls for him and stuff like that. Even he, with his broad community in these leadership positions, even he is talking about this kind of lateral cooperation where it's just, like, hey, you're just my homie. I trust you. Would you help me out with this? And I think that's super important. Yeah. So look, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about like your path into design and where is that at today? Do you have this like broader approach to community that help inform how you approach your work? Maybe take us through that. Sure. So I got into design really organically as a function of being a musician. When I was a kid, I started playing in DIY bands when I was 12 years old and we wanted t-shirts. We needed designs for our cassette covers and demos and record covers and tour posters. And we didn't have money to hire anybody. And so it would fall on just whoever was keen to do it. So I got really interested in doing that. Back in the day, it was cutting things out, photocopying if you had the hookup at Kinko's and <laughs> printing stuff on your own. And so I got really into composition and I really got into visual communication. It really was, especially with posters, it was about figuring out ways to, we're in this niche esoteric community and how to telegraph from a distance that this is insider information, but also that it's clear enough to be able to know when the gig is, where it's at and whenever. And so that was something that an interest of mine that really grew. I wasn't in school. My day jobs ran the gamut from training chef to bouncer to bike messenger, barista. I had all of the hipster jobs. <laughs> and design was this kind of common thread that I was doing yeah. first for my own projects and then for other people's projects, then started doing it for record companies and tour promoters and stuff. And it's something that I didn't have the word hustle for at the time. And I probably sure. wouldn't have thought of it as hustle. I just had all this creative energy. Right. And 
it was just a way to burn it off and to use it and to explore visual ideas. And then I remember a pretty pinnacle moment, like many designers of my generation, a friend of mine asked me to design a CD cover for him and offered me in exchange a bootleg copy of Photoshop, mm. which... <laughs> was a game changer, right? And I locked myself away for a few days, yeah. learned how to use the clunky UI. I didn't grow up with computers in the house. So all of this was just really new for me. I wasn't even in community with people with computers. And so right. a lot of it was trial and a whole lot of error, but it worked out. And so yeah. I continued to build the practice, freelancing on the side, but I still didn't feel confident making it my primary means of income. And after about 10 years, it started to eclipse my day job as far as the income went and my day job started getting in the way being able to focus on design both developing the skill and executing it yeah. and so eventually i decided to just i didn't feel like college was something that i had access to or time for and so i went and got a certificate in graphic design through the berkeley extension and that was really a matter of crossing my t's and dotting my i's because i had been so entrenched in books yeah like ellen lupton was someone in particular her books on typography and design were just such so they were so integral to my understanding of design and my passion for it that going to mm. school, I didn't necessarily learn a lot, but it set right. up some great work habits for me. And then I also got a certificate in UX from General Assembly. Okay. Which is a boot camp. And so I came out of those and started my freelance full time, was able to launch a career doing that. And I did freelance for about five years and it was really boon and bust. And I didn't want to work in house because I wanted to have a broad variety of clients and projects. Yeah. And I didn't want to work for tech because one, mm. I lived in West Oakland and I was watching the community of West Oakland just be absolutely decimated yeah. through aggressive gentrification. And also because I knew of tech as a really toxic environment. At the mm. time, a lot of my radical work was focused in feminism. And I was just seeing firsthand how toxic masculinity and sexism were really making it an awful place for women, femmes, and non-male identified people to work. And I didn't want to participate in that. And then I got broke. <laughs> I had one winter where all of my clients, without telling me, winter. it sure yeah. was. And yeah. everybody stopped paying invoices in October. They didn't want to report expenditures for the fourth quarter. And so they all put off paying until the new year without telling me. And so I was getting 70 to 80 billable hours a week and I was busting my butt and nobody was paying me. And I almost lost my home. Wow. And as someone who grew up poor, I, mean, yeah. that, I always feel like I'm one bad day from the streets, no matter, right. no matter how successful I get in that moment. It was really acute right. for me. I have a friend who is an anarchist, a radical open source hacker, and someone whose politics I believe firmly in. I believe in his ethics. And he was working for a little company, a little startup called CoreOS in San Francisco, and invited me to apply for an in-house position there mm. doing both graphic and UX design. And at the time, it it was just a design team of two people. Yeah. Like there were 65 employees at the time. And so I did an interview process with them, came on board. And two years later, we were acquired by Red Hat. Six mm. months later, Red Hat was acquired by IBM. Wow. <laughs> it's just... Uh, yeah, a like, whole cool. lot of big like, fish eating a bunch of little fish. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
But of course, I hit the ground running in that I already knew that I was concerned that these spaces were not inclusive. And I also believe very much that whenever anybody with a marginalized identity comes to the door, we really should be holding the door open for others. Yeah, And so immediately I helped co-form a diversity council at CoreOS where we hired Val Aurora and Frameship Consulting to come in and give an ally skills workshop. I was Mm. so blown away by that workshop that I talked the company into paying for me to do a train Mm. the trainers to learn how to facilitate that workshop. That began my working relationship with Frameshift Consulting, with whom Mm. I am a consultant now. And so it's not a coincidence to me that my career in tech and my career as an inclusion and radical advocacy, a facilitator and consultant have been completely hand in hand and parallel because they have informed each other the whole time. Yeah, and you see it even from how you grew up and how that's also played a role in how you approach things and your lenses to it. I think there's a few things that stand out. I just love how you are a student of design and just dedicated so much effort to it, where eventually those things worked out and the classes at least helped formalize a lot of those skills. So I think like, I love that. I love that piece because I think there's a point where the 10,000 hours is a really important part of being a designer and doing the job well. But then also too, so I think I saw like your, did you help form the ERG at Red Hat as well or? not? So not Red Hat's ERG. Red Hat's ERG is Build, Blacks United and Leadership Diversity. I am on the leadership team of that, but I did form the ERG at CoreOS and I have helped form ERGs at other companies as well. Yeah. A huge proponent of ERGs. Yeah. And then I also saw you were a co-chair of Bay Area Black Designers too at one point. So and I've had Kat on the show before. So She is a hero and one of my best friends. I'm a DIY person. When I see something I like, I figure out, I ask how I can participate and help and i was so frustrated at my i lived in west oakland i lived in a black neighborhood and i would get on bart every day to go to financial district of san francisco and the further i got from west oakland the further i got from black people and Mm -hmm. then i would get to the office and it was 2015 and i was right on the marching route for gosh i don't know if it was sandra bland or freddie gray or philando Mm -hmm. castillo exactly who it was we were marching for at the time but then i would get to work and people would just talk about how the marches were bothering their commute and the disconnect from it was painful. And so yeah. I Googled black designers, Bay Area. Kat Veos is queen of SEO. Yeah. She named her group yeah. the Bay Area Black Designers. And so mm. I went and joined that right away and became a contributing member and yeah, and had the honor of being co-chair of that for a while because I just always want to get involved and I just always want to help. Yeah. And contribute as much as possible. Yeah. I can reflect in the same sort of circumstances when a black person gets killed and it's all on TV and then you go to work and no one's talking about it. It's a very isolating experience. And I think I probably made a pledge to myself like that I can't be in an environment like that anymore. If it's company doesn't have it, then I'm going to do something about it. Now, there's also questions of why you need to do that much work in a company that you're in. We don't have enough time on this call for that discussion. Why? You know what? I'll tell you what, though. I would love to come back to talk about that because pre yeah. before the murder of George Floyd, there was very yeah. much the problem where nobody was talking about it. And that was isolating of itself. And then yep. post George Floyd, we saw a situation where our black ERG was around 250 members, almost wow. all of whom were black. And we were just operating amongst ourselves. And then after mm. the murder of George Floyd, we had over 450 new people join within two days, none of whom were black. 
And mm. the energy that they brought in was, you need to teach us right now. Yes. You need, yeah. and not only that, but the demands were very much, Demanding. it needs to be curated specifically. It needs to be couture for us. Yeah. But one thing in particular was we need an allyship educational library. And I mm. said, I'm very happy to help put together a library. A lot of black people, we went to the same public schools. We learned the same yeah. mythological history. We need to be educated as well. Everybody should be reading Isabella Wilkerson. Mm. Everybody should be reading Kimberly Crenshaw. This is not, and very few of us are raised with it. So why does it need to be an allyship mm -hmm. resource library? Why can't this be a resource library? And the answer was pretty clear was that it was expected to, it had to be very obvious that it was creative for and welcoming to non-Black folks. And so then the new isolation that came in was we were navigating the very real emotional impacts of what were going on, but we were also being expected in addition to our day jobs, which right. we were already marginalized within, we were now also tasked with the role of having to impersonally, right, without passion, without opinion, without any emotion attached to it, now become these these experts and these and these consultants and these providers. And so it was a brand new type of isolation. And so when I thought about this interview, which I'm just so just hype on this opportunity. I really wanted to be sure to say in this two years after the murder of George Floyd, many of us are working at these companies and many of us are on these interior committees and we're part yeah. of these action teams and all of these things that we're doing to help our companies live up to their own stated DIY manifestos and mission statements and public statements and all this stuff. We are providing this service to the company, not to our communities. This is not mm. a self-serving act. And I think about my therapist, black woman, she's trying to understand why I am putting myself through burnout, why I am putting in all this extra work while I'm still not being I'm still not on the same career track at my job as my white right. peers are and express to her that I am concerned that nobody's advocating, especially for the newer employees of color, the newer black people that come in, the retention is awful in this and that. And she's really helped me think about who am I serving? Am I helping improve a system or am I helping conceal the problems of a system? I making somebody's experience better or am I actively keeping them from seeking a better experience? Maybe this place with all this work mm -hmm. isn't the right place. And my work in these efforts, are they actually benefiting individuals or not? And if right. they're not, then maybe I need to step back and examine this work that isn't design, that isn't the things that I've been hired for, and consider how they are taxing me spiritually, how they're taxing me physically, how they're taxing me emotionally, how much time I'm spending when I'm not at work thinking about it, laying awake at night, personalizing mm -hmm. it. Perhaps I'm not actually in service of the people that I have right. seen. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I'll close out on this piece. Like I think one of the interesting parts about that is I think if you took yourself out of the situation, take yourself out of the role that you're playing, if you weren't there, are things still playing out in the way mm. that is? I've definitely had to take that lens because this should be something like if you're putting in that type of effort, if a company is really committed to, I think in an ideal world, would be able to self-sustain without an individual or a particular set of individuals, right? Because, you know, you're not going to be there your whole life. 
Yeah, I think these are some really interesting thoughts, very thought-provoking. I, I do want to say that systemic change is incremental. It is yeah. slow. It's not a game of yardage. It is a game of inches, for sure. But every once yeah. in a while, we do need to take stock and see mm. if there has actual been progress forward. Do not be mm. discouraged by slow progress, but keep an yeah. eye out for false progress. False mm. progress is busy work to keep you from actually trying to make change or feeling like your revolutionary spirit is being engaged. Slow progress is progress. No progress is a problem. And maybe the solution that you have been trying to apply isn't the right solution, right? We know that as designers, we know that as yep. creators of experiences for people that sometimes we think we have the right solution and we've yeah. just been looking at it wrong. We have to take a step back, reframe it, look at it again. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much, Kendall. That was great to close out the show on. I appreciate you being on. We need to do another recording. I'd love like, to. I'd love, this is such just, a treat. We just need to meet up in person. Like we actually just, I just had a hosting a meetup in Oakland this past weekend. Let me know. I want to come out. Yeah. yeah. We'll do some more, especially next year. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. How can folks follow up with you? Where are you at on the internet? I'm over 40. So I'm fine with direct email at the Kendall house at Gmail, or you can find me on Instagram at the resistance is brutal. Resistance is brutal with periods instead of spaces. I'm not really playing around with Elon Musk's Twitter these days. So <laughs> find me one of those places or awesome. just look out for me on these streets. Awesome. Look, we'll include links to all of that in the show notes and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Sounds good, brother. Take care. Stay dry. Thank you. That concludes the show. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is a huge way to show your support and it really helps us reach more people and grow our following. By the way, we release a new episode every two weeks, but in the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or YouTube at Technically Speaking HW. Again, thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of Technically Speaking Media.